Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They had been been around the block a time or two. What the first deal they built, I bet. No, no, you know, I think they were, the the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped up car, and he he complained that the government gave him these piece of crap, cheapo cars, and that, that were really no match. But he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who, who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a, in a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item. Backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hello, this is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Hello, it's your host, Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, where Brave in Life and Dell versus Daytona are Pulitzer Prize winners for excellence <laughs> in motorsports literature. I agree wholeheartedly. <laughs> Steve, before we begin, I got to ask you one thing. What do you think about my T-shirt that I'm wearing at this moment? It says the first annual Bigfoot Festival in Marion, North Carolina. Well, congratulations, Rick. Your name, Bigfoot, is on a (laughs) T-shirt. 
when I saw this, I absolutely had to get it in honor of my friend and my cohort and my mentor, Steve Wade. Absolutely couldn't pass it up. I tell you, it looks great on you, Rick, and no doubt about it. Is Bigfoot up in Marion? Evidently, he is, because there is some big festival that they had a couple of weeks ago, and my son's football coach was uh-huh. there with his family. They actually went to this thing to check out what all ever they had on display there. And when I saw that they were there on Facebook, I said, you got to get me a T-shirt. So here it is. Well, it says it's the first annual Bigfoot. I knew you weren't going to let that slide. Well, what we got to do is go to the second and see if we can meet your cousin. (laughs) (laughs) I think we ought to broadcast from there next year. Oh, there's a good idea. (laughs) We can talk in grunts. (laughs) Well, we do half the time anyway. That's true. Steve, in this episode, in all seriousness, we have the second part of my interview with Bobby Allison. He talks about, I know it's hard to believe when it comes to Bobby Allison, but he talks about a couple of controversies that he was involved in. And also he talks about his life in general and his perspective on life. If anybody deserves to have a special outlook on life, it would be Bobby because of the things that he's been through. Well, I agree with 100%, Rick. Uh, No man husband or father should have to go through what Bobby Allison has gone through and that he remains a very pleasant knowledgeable outgoing individual to me is somewhat amazing given all the heartache he's gone through I admire him for it the second part of our episode we're going to talk about our issue of the week and our issue of the week is May 7th 1987. And with NASCAR headed to Talladega this week, it was only natural since we were talking about Bobby Allison to talk about the 1987 Winston 500. That was both an exciting and horrifying. Oh yeah. Yeah. No doubt. Absolutely. And there was almost too much to talk about that race. I don't know how you guys covered it all at the track. I don't know how we did either, but I know one thing we were at that track longer than any other time that we had been to Talladega because of all the things we had to report on. And believe it or not, the race won by Davey was almost secondary. So since we have so much to get to, Bobby, take it away. Bobby, you did win three Daytona 500s, yeah. uh, 1978, 1982, and 1988, but there was one in particular that got away from you, and and that was the 81 yeah. Daytona 500. Now, going into that race, you had a Pontiac Le Mans yeah. that was pretty much the center of attention. Yeah, it was. <laughs> what had people so spun out about that car? Well, what happened, NASCAR was changing the rules to the downsized cars, but at the same time, they wanted to go to what was called the formal look. Mm-hmm. You know, and the General Motors cars had a very square roof line for the formal look. You know, a, a flat back window with a flat trunk lid, which made a, a big air cavity behind the window. And uh, the the Fords were a little bit better, but they were similar. And, and the uh, Chrysler products were a little bit better, and they, but they also were similar. We were testing, and, and we were, we were kind of doing okay, but nobody was handling good, and, and the speeds weren't where we wanted them to be, and, and uh, everybody was having a problem with the driving. And Davey said, uh, I was car shopping the other day, and I saw a Pontiac Le Mans. So we said, well, we'll go look at one. So we got in the car, the crew chief and, 
and the car owner and myself and Davey got in the car and we drove over to Lamb Pontiac right there in Daytona, right east of where the track is. And they didn't have one, but they had a picture of it. And said, wow, boy, that looks good. So went and called my friend uh, Michael Laughlin, who was building race cars for, uh, but not getting a lot of customers at the time. And and uh, we were using his stuff and doing uh, really good with that. So called him up and said, Mike, we got to have a car and we got to have it in a hurry. And we have to build it behind closed doors because we don't want anybody <laughs> else to know we're building. So he said, okay. And, you know, he really charged in there and got this car ready for us. And um, so the, the crew chief decided that we should go by Talladega and run the car a few laps just to make sure that it, it did everything we wanted it to do. So, so we rented Talladega and uh, took the car there. And, of course, when you rent the track, you, you have to have their safety crew there. You know, that's, that's the, the way the thing always was, and that's, that's the rule of the game. So we had the safety crew there, and uh, we made a, a couple laps, and the car was incredibly fast, and it drove incredibly good. <laughs> and uh, the crew chief was really mad at me because I had gone too fast right off the bat, but I didn't even go wide open, you know. Just, wow. Which at Talladega, you know, you could always go wide open. The track was so good that even if the car was bad, the track would make up for it. And... Uh, I didn't even go wide open. The crew chief was mad at me and about showing our hand. And uh, when we got to Daytona, uh, they were they were waiting. But uh, the first thing they did, they they kept us off the racetrack the first day while they made templates for a Pontiac Le Mans because they didn't have any. And then when they got the, the templates made, our car misfit in the templates by a, a fraction. Mm-hmm. And so... They said, "No, you're going to have to make it fit exactly to the to the letter." And so we had to spend some time cutting on the car and doing a little bit of welding, a little bit of patching and painting, and getting the car ready to get back out there. The car was just really good. Um, I was running really good in the uh, clash and a tar- uh, tire equalized on me, and I had to pit, so that put me out of that. I won the qualifier on Thursday. Okay. Sunday, the car was just incredibly good, and the crew chief said, well, we can't lead the race, you know, uh, because if we do, they're going to outlaw our car. They're going to outlaw us anyway. No, he says, I'm running this thing. You do do what I say. So he says, you got to stay back in the pack until till the end. So I stayed back in the pack until really late in the race, and uh, just – had a couple of wheel marks on the side of the car where guys were trying to race with me and, and draft and all that stuff. And so I said to the crew chief, we need to go ahead and be leading because we're going to end up getting this thing torn up. He said, well, go ahead and do what you want to do. So I eased on out front and was sitting there just smiling <laughs> and ran out of gas. Ran out of gas. And I was supposed to have pitted uh, with 21 laps to go. And it ran out of gas with 19 laps to go. The crew chief d- decided not to call me in. Wow. How frustrating was that after after having such a good car? Well, it was really bad, and it was it was even worse because it put me at odds with the crew chief and with 
you know, you know, with the race team and, you know, I wanted to go race and I wanted to go fast and I wanted to win, but I didn't want to have to, to be in a, a constant arguing situation wow. with the, you know, and, and, uh, the, the crew chief blamed the running out of gas on my lousy chassis setup, used up all his <laughs> gas. Yeah. So, you know, um, it really, um, it deteriorated our effort right from the very beginning. You know, we had a, a year where we won some races, but, but we never, never had good communication and never had a happy race team effort. And at the end of the year, I left. Now, let's talk a little bit about your second Daytona 500, the 1982 Daytona 500. Mm-hmm. Your bumper came off early in the race. Yeah. Now, a lot of people said that was by design, and you do not say that. That I, I absolutely refuse that. Uh, what happened, mm-hmm. we won the, the Clash, and we won the 125, and we're sitting on the front row for the for the Daytona 500, and Joe Gasway, <clears throat> Bill Gasway's younger brother, who wanted to have a lot of authority, but it really didn't, but, but could pull off this kind of thing, came over to us on Saturday before happy hour and said, I caught you guys cheating. You got to move your back bumper one-eighth of an inch. <laughs> so we had One-eighth. And he made us cut it off the car. I mean, we couldn't bend it or, or push around. No, we had to cut it off the car, and then... Then reattach it. Well, we had a 110, 110-volt wire welder, which did a pretty good job on sheet metal and stuff like that, but it really wasn't what you needed for something like a bumper mount. But we put it back on with that, and it was good enough that it would have stayed had we not got hit. But on that lap, that bumper came off. Cale uh, Yarbrough had got into me in the, up in the corner and had hooked his front bumper into my back bumper, and then when he turned and put his brakes on it, pulled my bumper off. Now, he missed the bumper, but a couple guys behind him did not, unfortunately for them. But we'd already won everything, so how could we worry about doing something like this to try to make the car go faster? That was dumb. So, And, and anybody that thinks that in that way is thinking dumb. You won the 1982 Daytona 500 with Die Guard, mm-hmm. and then the next year, in 83... You won the Winston Cup championship. Yes. After all those years of trying, what did it mean to you to finally win that championship? Oh, it was the most incredible achievement of my whole career. You know, just it was something that I wanted from day one. I got really close way back in in sixty nine, seventy, seventy one, you know, seventy two. Just kept missing it. You know, got really close and. And still would come up just a little tiny bit short. By then I was getting old. You know, I was 45 years old. To win the championship was the the ultimate achievement in our sport. And to finally get that, it was just super duper. In 1987, you were involved in an accident at Talladega that pretty much changed the face of NASCAR, even to this day. Yeah. And, of course, that was the race where you cut a tire. Mm. and turned around and went into the catch fence. Yeah. What do you remember about that accident? From the DVD, it looked like you had no time. 
to yeah, react. Yeah, it was really quick. You know, I was proud of the fact that, that I was on the, when Elliot was on the pole at 212, I was on the outside pole on a Buick at 211. And uh, I was pretty proud of that. Uh, our equipment was good. Our car was fast. And with the drafting the way it is at Talladega, I got to shuffle and was back in the pack a fourth or fifth or somewhere back there in the lineup, but running good and, and happy with the car. And my engine blew up. And my engine blew up so bad <laughs> that a big piece of my crankshaft came out of the car and went under the car, and I ran over it with the right rear tire. That's what jumped the car up into the air and also blew the tire out while, while that was happening. But that jumped the car up in the air and made it spin around and uh, completely out of control, went into the fencing and tore all the the, the catch fence down and uh it was it was quite a ride you know i really hung on but i didn't get hurt any in that you know i I didn't even get bounced around bad just hung on good and the car was built good and it finally came to rest but because of the violence of the crash my dry sump oil tank had gotten broken and i had oil all over me and in my face and inside my goggles outside my goggles Mm. and so i couldn't see yeah and so that when the safety crew got there, they, they realized that I wasn't hurt any, but I had to go to the infield care center to get checked out. And they put me in the ambulance and took me the long way around the racetrack. You know, and I asked the guy, I said, how many people are hurt back there? He said, don't, don't worry about it. Nobody's hurt. Hmm. And I thought, well, you know, they're taking me this way, so I don't see what a mess it is back yeah. there. And uh, they took me a long way, and we got to the – to the infield care center and dr hardwick came out there and said shut the helicopters off folks we don't need them hmm. and that was good news to me because if i didn't need it that meant nobody else needed one either <laughs> so i was at least happy about that now of course davy went on to win the first race of his winston cup career in that event in yeah. that very event yes how big a day was that for not only you but the the whole family well, it was incredibly big. Seeing when I came out of the, the care center after after my crash, I told Judy, "Let's go home," and she said, "No, we're staying. We got to stay here and support Davy." And it, it probably was the, the 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 best directive she ever gave me. <laughs> Directive—that's a good yeah. word for it. Yeah, I tried to think of, of, of really the right description. Uh, you know, it was definitely was an order, but we stayed. And and I was really pleased that we did, and we we got to go to Victory Lane and celebrate with them when that race was over, and it was just it was so special, you know. Davy had already won good uh, won there with Arca, but uh, was his first NASCAR Cup win of his career, and for it to be there at Talladega at, at what was our home track, and all of the things that you can say, uh, it was really special. Bobby in '88. You won the Daytona 500, and four months later, you had your wreck at Pocono, and that started a, a series of events in your life that is hard for most people to comprehend. Shouldn't happen to my worst enemy. The thing that I respect about you, number one, is the fact you get out of bed in the morning, and number two, most any time anybody sees you, you got a smile on your face. Well, and How can you do that? You know, um, I did have a great career. You know, and and we have had a great life in this country. You know, the, we we certainly had uh, the good times, but then we had bad times. And um, you know, I th- I think of the 
the the big picture where a lot of people have had the bad times that didn't really get to have the good times. And, you know, we did that. We pursued our dream, and uh, we did it as a family, and we did it as individual competitors and um, just just had a lot of a lot of, of success out there in, the, in a, a great competitive sport going on. And, and um, I'm at peace with myself. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm a Christian. Uh, my, my dad was the best Christian man I ever knew, and my mom was right there with him, you know. So that was pretty good for me from that standpoint, you know, uh, to, to be able to, to feel like, uh, you know, some of these things are out of our control, but some some we can influence and some we can put good effort to and, and accomplish some things along the way. And and uh, I had had a lot of good times, and so I prefer to, uh, to concentrate on the good times. Well, Steve, Bobby certainly was no stranger to controversy. And in the 1981 Daytona 500, that was the first year for the downsized cars. Right. And the story that Bobby told was that Davey went car shopping and saw this Pontiac Le Mans that he thought looked pretty cool and came back to Bobby and said, hey, you might want to consider this for a race car. And it kind of snowballed from there. Yeah, what happened was, and I remember this, the Daytona 500 was the second race of the year that year. And Bobby had already won at Riverside in a Chevrolet. Now, what happened was exactly how you said. Davey came back and said, hey, you need to take a look at the Simons by Pontiac because it could be a great car for the super speedways. Now, what the difference was... It was not a Le Mans. It was a Grand Le Mans, a different car, but still eligible for NASCAR competition because the rule book didn't say anything about it. What it had was a much more accented slope on the rear window going down to the rear spoiler, and it looked like it really flowed the air down, keep the car stable while the car could pick up speed. Bobby, with Harry Neer as his team owner at the time, they got a hold of one of those cars and secretly tested at Talladega, never showed up at Daytona for testing, did all their testing at Talladega, and arrived with the car at Daytona, turned a lot of heads, and boy, it was very fast from the get-go. What was everybody so upset about, basically? Was it just that Bobby had figured something out that they hadn't, or was this a case kind of like Jeff Gordon's T-Rex that he and Ray Everham brought to the Winston that year? What was the issue? It was kind of a both. It was kind of like Bobby and Harry Renier did snooker everybody else in Finland. And what else they did was snooker NASCAR. The list of eligible cars did list a Pontiac Le Mans, but it did not list a Grand Le Mans. Well, the point being, there was no difference. It was still a Le Mans. And Bobby took advantage of that. And obviously, uh, it worked. He went out there and he won the pole, easily won the pole with the car. And in the race itself, led 117 laps, more than anybody else, but didn't win. And he talks about that in his interview, and you could tell that that still kind of bothered him a little bit because he never once mentioned his crew chief's name. And his crew chief at the time, of course, was Waddell Wilson. Waddell said this and figured that on fuel mileage and 
Bobby felt that he should have done this or should have done that. The end result was he ran out of gas and that kind of created a rift between the two of them. There was that, no doubt about that. But the real issue of the race was how Richard Petty won it. In the last series of pit stops, everybody came in and took on four tires and gas. Richard came in, and after already radioing his crew chief, Dale Inman, they decided they were not going to change tires and take gasoline only, which is what they did. And Richard came out more than 10 seconds ahead of the field. Now, here's the amazing thing. He never did get new tires. Now, how he did that, I don't know. That's something else. <laughs> the, the conspiracy theorists can have a field day <laughs> The with. plot thins. <laughs> yeah. But that's how he won the race. And uh, the, Bobby was naturally upset after you know running out of gas, and that did very seriously hurt his chances to victory. But he had no opportunity to gain on Richard Petty because of what his team had done with no tire, no new tires and running that far on the same set of tires and winning the race. And some people said, hmm, this is a little bit of a miracle that we don't understand. But it happened. Well, like I said, that created a rift between Bobby and Waddell. And at the end of the year, Bobby left Rainier Racing and went to Diegard. They go to Daytona. And what happens? <laughs> <laughs> that, that was called Bumpergate at the time. That was the race in which Bobby uh, Bobby's rear bumper came off after contact with Cale Yarbrough in the race. Now, I don't know how a bumper can necessarily do that unless it's hit the right way, I guess. But I can remember seeing that thing fly in the air right now to this day. And lo and behold... He got faster <laughs> without that bumper. And you would think that that, that that would not be the case, but it was. And uh, Bobby went on to, to win the Daytona 500 in 1982. Now, here come the conspiracy theorists. Now, remember, this is, this is the second year in a row at Daytona that I browsed a race. 81 for the Pontiac Grand Le Mans, which a car was basically legislated out of existence in four races by NASCAR. And then number two, Richard running so far on old tires. And now number three, the bumper coming off of Bobby's car. The theorists figured out that Gary Nelson, who was a pretty shrewd crew chief in his day, had pulled off a gimmick in which the car would run faster without the bumper. How he found that out, I don't know. But that was a theory that he installed the bumper that way. So at the least bit of contact, uh, it would have come off. And Cale Yarbrough, who's the man that hit Bobby, claimed Bobby cut him off. Came up and right across him. And <laughs> Thanks, Cale. <laughs> there goes the bumper. So, uh, man, I tell you, over those two years, there's a lot of uh, controversial moments, and Bobby is right in the middle of it. Steve, we're going to talk about the 1987 Winston 500 in our second segment when we talk about the issue of the week. So I want to fast forward to 1988. Bobby wins the Daytona 500 with Davey running second. Certainly a career highlight for both of them. I think that was certainly at the very top of the list for highlights in both of their careers. They go to Pocono, and Bobby gets hurt very, very, very seriously, right. critically. What do you remember about that? I remember that, uh, as I recall, it was only like the second lap of the race, and Bobby had a tire going down, 
And uh, I don't know if he was instructed to pit, but he didn't pit. And then, then he got into the accident with Giacomo Giacomo on the backstretch. And uh, it was pretty serious. And I remember thinking to myself, I hope Bobby can walk away from this one. Well, he didn't. He was driven to the hospital in Allentown, PA. And uh, believe it or not, uh, uh, a couple of us media types went to the hospital the next day to see what we could find out and, uh, of course, to report on his condition. We were thinking we were going to have to go right in obit, you know, God forbid. But we walked in there, and uh, the first word we got was, he's still with us, and that, that, that he was alert. They didn't say conscious. They said alert. Now, what that means is, I guess, he responds to some stimuli. That's the report we got. But we knew that it had to be serious enough to threaten Bobby's career, and it did. It took him months to recover to the point where he could uh, go out and mingle in society again. But I don't think to this day he ever fully recovered. I mean, he had to deal with his memory. He, has to deal with, he had to deal with his balance. He had to deal with his motor capacity. And he overcame pretty much all of it in time. But I still kind of wonder to this day how it affected him going through life from that point on. Well, he will tell you that he does not remember the 1988 Daytona 500, which is, to me, just heartbreaking for him because sure. that, like I said, would be a highlight for any family right. involved in NASCAR. Exactly. Yeah. The, the interesting story is he told me once that the first time he got any solid memory of what he had done in racing was when he looked at the cover of Grand National Illustrated, the magazine. He was on the cover in a tux with his crew in the car all out in front of the Waldorf Astoria. And Bobby told me, see, I saw that magazine. I looked at that cover and I said, oh, wait, man, my championship year, I did that. And that jolted his memory back to the point where he could start recalling bits and pieces of his career. But never the 88 Daytona 500. He does get better, certainly well enough to come back to the racetrack and function as a team owner. Never drives again in competition, but he does contribute to the sport as a team owner. August of 1992, his son Clifford is killed in an accident at Michigan during practice. And then the very next year, Steve, the very next year, less than a year later, he loses Davey. I absolutely positively, beyond the faintest shadow of a doubt, cannot imagine going through that. No, that situation was certainly uh, affect any man very negatively. Uh, and I think it did Bobby as well. Uh, how could it not, you know, the situation being what it was? But the thing about Davy's accident, which was in a helicopter that he flew with Red Farmer to Talladega, and they crashed upon trying to land right there at the infield garage area. Bobby told Davey, do not get that helicopter. I really wish you would not do that. You know, Did he really? Because Bobby was such an aviator himself. He was a pilot himself. Absolutely. I, yeah. Wow. He, he didn't trust those helicopters. And those, uh -huh. they were starting to get to be a fad among young men with means. Bill Elliott flew one. He flew one to the Grand National Scene, Winston Cup Scene offices one day. Did he really? Yeah, wow. landed in our parking lot to do a photo shoot. 
And then, uh, you know, I saw. No, he was just showing off. <laughs> <laughs> I saw that little helicopter and I said, man, uh, I don't know about this sort of thing, but I'm not a very good flyer anyway when it comes to unique aircraft, you know. I'll take a jet, no problem, but don't, don't try to put me in one of these little old helicopters. So, yeah, so that's, I think, was Bobby's take on the situation. Bobby had faith in airplanes that you could control, you know, more easily than I think you could a smaller helicopter. And he did advise David not to do it. He and his wife, Judy, went through a tough time after that, as any couple would. You read statistics and they say that parents who lose children very often wind up divorced. And that happened to Bobby and Judy. But... They wound up getting together. That was a cool resolution to that very, very sad time. Yeah, it was. And I was glad to see it. Uh, obviously, you, you don't anticipate anybody getting a divorce and then getting back together again. But uh, these two... Well, sh- I certainly can't. <laughs> <laughs> these two showed the, their unity, and uh, that was a good thing, and... Uh, I was also, on a personal level, I was also very pleased to see it because Judy told Bobby and told me I was her favorite writer. And I was immensely proud of that. Really? Yeah, that's exactly what she said. Oh, shows what she knew. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe she thought I was so suave and debonair. Yeah, that's what it was. There we go. But anyway, yeah, she she and I uh, always uh, had some wonderful conversations when I did meet her. That was a little bit extra special to me to see them get back together because uh, uh, she held me in such high regard. And I appreciate that. I, I really do appreciate that. Judy did pass away, I guess, a couple of years ago now. The thing about Bobby, as I told him, is that every time you see him, he has a smile on his face. Yeah. He gets out of bed every day. Steve, to be able to do that, that makes him a superhero. Forget about what he accomplished in NASCAR. Forget about the fact that he was a member of the NASCAR Hall of Fame. Right. Forget the fact that he won 85 races. He is truly a strong individual at heart. Absolutely. And uh, even stronger, in my opinion, uh, with uh, all the adversity he has overcome in his life. And to be today a great ambassador for NASCAR, you won't find a nicer guy. I mean, we always talk about Richard Petty being a nice guy, and he is. And right now, Bobby, I think, is pretty much on his level and has earned as much respect as Richard has over the years, and for the same reason. They both are good human beings. Steve, with NASCAR headed to Talladega this week and with us talking about Bobby Allison, the natural fit for the issue of the week was the May 7th, 1987 issue of Grand National Scene. That was a packed issue, and it's actually one of the very first issues that I scanned completely. I scanned every page right off the bat because I wanted to make sure that it was preserved for history, if for no other reason than to preserve everything that took place Mm -hmm. that week because there was so much going on. Number one, Bill Elliott qualified at a speed, Steve, of 212.809 miles an hour. That is crazy. Let me stop you right there. That was the first sign that we all thought something might be wrong. Now, 
NASCAR was not running the restricted plates at the time, and the cars were wide open. And they should have known after last year when cars were going over 200 miles an hour that it was going to increase in 1987, and it certainly did. There was only one guy, I think his name was Steve Christman, who did not make the field at 200 miles an hour. Well, he's the only one that made the field who qualified below right. 200 right. miles an hour. Yeah. 198 something. So, but we stopped, we had to stop and think, you know, drivers, several drivers took only one qualifying lap. They were petrified. <laughs> so yeah. They yeah. said it felt like I was hydroplaning out there. The car was going left and right, and I, I had to come in. Several drivers did that, and that was another sign that something wasn't quite right. Now, NASCAR was enjoying at the time, and because of the speeds, some of the greatest press coverage it had ever had. I mean, newspapers and television outlets that normally didn't have a thing to do with NASCAR were reporting that NASCAR's cars were going faster than any stock cars had ever gone. And this is opening some eyes, but it did raise some questions. The fuse was definitely lit. Yeah. Because as positive as that coverage might have been, almost 213 miles an hour, something's going to happen. Something's going well, to Well, that's give. exactly how the media felt. We normally say, hope this is a good race, because you always want to report on a good race. More than that, we were saying, I hope nobody gets hurt. The race starts, and I think lap 22, somewhere in there, Bobby Allison runs over a piece of debris on the racetrack, blows a tire, gets turned sideways, and Steve, all hell breaks loose. Yeah, that car got airborne and flew into the catch fence coming across the front straight. It flew almost over that catch fence. And you could see metal and debris spewing everywhere. And we thought, oh, my Lord, you know, spectators have been killed. And Bobby's car came down to, when it came down to the ground in the mess, he was not hurt. But the, the fence has, had, was ripped open. In a straight line. And not just a little piece of fence, 150 feet. That's, yeah. It's just a, it's like a gash. Yeah. In it. And the first thing we wonder is what's happened to the spectators? Fortunately, nobody was seriously hurt, although there were eye injuries and other lacerations and cuts, and several people were treated there at the hospital there at the Speedway. Uh, the real question was what, what's going to happen now? Now, think about this for a minute. What if the most horrifying thing happened? In other words, the car went into the grandstands and, you know, made contact at high speed with so many spectators. You knew right then if that had happened, we would not have survivors. Now, here's the other thing we would not have, and that's NASCAR. If that car goes into the grandstands, it's over. You and I aren't sitting here talking about no. it. No. Absolutely, positively There may be not. stock car racing in some shape or form, but it's not NASCAR. So one of the uh, results of that particular accident that was a positive was that NASCAR realized they can't have cars going that fast any longer. And I think NASCAR's insurance people told them the same thing, if you want to know the truth. And so therefore, they went to the restrictor plates at the super speedways that after to slow the cars down. That, of course, has been just a topic of almost overwhelming controversy ever since those restrictor plates were first announced. 
my point in the whole thing is the fact that in this case, NASCAR is between a rock and a hard place. They absolutely cannot run these cars unrestricted. Cannot happen no. because what do you say right now? If those cars were unrestricted today, what would they be doing? Oh, I couldn't even hazard a guess, but I guarantee you it would be fast enough for the competitor to start complaining about it. And I think they really Now that's would. saying something. Yeah, they really yeah. would if it was going that fast any longer. The only one that didn't like the restricted plates outright was Dale Earnhardt. He did not like them. He said, we ought to be running what we can run. And basically said that uh, restrictor plates were cheating the fans out of the top racing they could see. And certainly he didn't mind driving that fast for them, but they couldn't do that. They could not do that. And you were right about a rock and a hard place, right and wrong. Uh, Not only did uh, fans or some people, let's say, object to the restrictor plates, a bigger objection was NASCAR's constant changing of the size of the air hole to a restrictor plate. Every time cars got faster, and they did get faster with restrictor plates, they kept getting inching up in speeds. NASCAR had to come back and legislate how big a restrictor plate they could have to keep the speed progress from happening. That was a constant headache for them and admittedly for the competitors as well to have to keep making changes. Nobody likes <laughs> rule changes very much, but in this case, it had no choice. You mentioned Dale Earnhardt, and if there has ever been an interview in NASCAR history that I truly would have loved to have been a part of, it would have been at Richmond in the fall of the year 2000. Dale got together with four of the prominent media members at the time. One of them was Tom Jensen, my boss, your co-worker <laughs> at Winston Cup scene. And it was during this interview that he went off. I mean, he just absolutely went off on restrictor plates. And that was the very famous interview where he said, if drivers don't like how fast we're going, they can tie a kerosene rag around their ankles so ants don't crawl up their legs and eat their candy asses. Fans today recall that statement about the candy asses and the kerosene rags, and they say, well, you need to take the restrictor plates off and let men be men and racers be racers and get back to when racing was really racing. I can guarantee you one thing. Anybody who says that has never driven an unrestricted race car at Daytona or Talladega. So Steve, Bobby Allison has his wreck, and there's a long, long, long red flag period where they repair the fence. Davey goes on to win that race. And it's not just a race during a regular season for him. He's a rookie winning early in his rookie season. The thing about it was Davey said that he saw his father's accident in his rearview mirror, and he was just horrified. And he sat there like we all did through over well over two hours under a red flag so the fence could be repaired and he starts a race back up again and he basically dominated from that point on so he went on then to win the first race of his rookie season now he would win two before the season was over and uh, make the rookie of the year obviously now here's the interesting thing and a bit ironic he was driving for harry Vernier. and guess who bobby was driving for back in 1981 you know, same team owner. A little bit of irony there. 
one additional cherry on top was the fact that it came at Talladega, what, an hour or so from Hueytown? Yeah. Where they were from? That hometown track. Yeah. So Talladega has always been known for providing surprise winners, shall we say. And he was not the first rookie to win at Talladega. Ron Bouchard, several years earlier, had done the same thing. So, you know, having a surprise winner or even a rookie win at Talladega is not that much of an eyebrow raiser. You know, Talladega was home to several first-time winners. You had, just off the top of my head, you have Phil Parsons. Correct. You have Dick Brooks back in the early 70s. You have Bobby Hillen. You have Ken Schrader won his first race there. So there are several first-time winners that have taken place at Talladega. And different winners. I think the Speedway used to brag about the many different winners they had. What was it, 16? Yeah, 15 races, 15 15 faces. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. I mean, that that enhanced Talladega's reputation uh, for being an exciting place to watch a race immensely. One other thing that I wanted to mention about this issue, Jeff Bodine had been a volunteer fireman in his home state of New York. And during the ARCA race on Saturday, a fire broke out on pit road and injured two or three pit crew members. Jeff Bodine was evidently in the infield media center right next to pit road, saw what happened, grabbed a fire extinguisher, took off running and actually helped put it out. So I thought that was kind of a cool note. Well, being a fireman up in uh, New York State and getting the training and the knowledge that he had, he knew what exactly was happening. And with his training, he knew how to help uh, fight that fire. So uh, my hat's off to him for that. Now, let me ask you this. If it had been Del Earnhardt's pit on fire, do you think he would have helped out? (laughs) (laughs) I would hope so. (laughs) Maybe, maybe not. (laughs) He'd have reservations, perhaps. Steve, we continue to get reviews on iTunes, and they continue to be good ones. We are at, I want to say, 37 written reviews on iTunes. They're all great ones. They're all good ones. I might have to give away these books, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> when I started, I was like, oh, it never happened. So <laughs> my, my bet is safe. Well, you know what? I think I might just have to pay up on this Well, thing. that would be a good thing. <laughs> In all seriousness, on iTunes, if you can leave us a five-star rating and written review, once we get to 50, I will give one of those lucky reviewers a copy of every NASCAR book that I've ever written. So, hey, that's Second to none, that's Dell versus Daytona, NASCAR's greatest race, Rockingham Speedway, so on and so forth. And that makes for an impressive racing life. Yeah, absolutely. If you could leave us a review, it does help our positioning on iTunes and helps us increase our listening audience. So it would be a big help. Also on Patreon, Steve, last week I announced the new deal, $1. $1. That's awesome. All I'm asking of people is $1 a month. And you know what? Started to see a little bit of life. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, people are ponying up a little bit. Well, $1 a month, that's great. You can't buy a carton of beer for that. <laughs> <laughs> How did I know that you would put it that way? <laughs> How did I know that that would be your measuring stick? It's the way I look at economics. <laughs> Listeners, $1 a month. That's what I'm asking. So 
if you do believe that NASCAR history is worth preserving, and that's ultimately why I'm here, that's why I'm doing this podcast, a dollar a month. That's all I'm asking. Well, I think that's more than reasonable. (laughs) I think for a dollar a month to enjoy as much history as we have to offer is a very, very inexpensive price to pay. So to support the production of this podcast for a dollar a month, now I'll take $5, $10, whatever amount, but that's all I'm asking is a dollar a month. The address is patreon.com slash the scene bought podcast. If you would rather do a one-time contribution, the address is paypal.me slash the scene vault podcast. Steve, thank you so much. Once again, Rick, it's been a pleasure. Enjoyed every moment of it. And I would, I think that we have to definitely go see Bigfoot as soon as we possibly can. You know, that, (laughs) that reminds me, Uh Oh, that reminds me my movie first man comes out Thursday. Have you got your tickets yet? (laughs) Your movie? Uh, My movie. I am not going to miss it. I have I, been told you are in it for a total of, what, five seconds? Hey, I'm in it for five seconds. It's my movie. Okay. Move okay. over, Ryan okay. Gosling. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then five seconds and an Academy Award-winning performance in that time. Congratulations, Rick. Okay, fine. <laughs> we'll see you next week.